Let's pray as we open the word. Father, we thank you for Holy Week. This Palm Sunday, Lord, is when you were just on the cusp of the final execution of your plan for the first coming of Jesus, the cross and resurrection pending. Lord, the world has never been the same since these events. And my prayer, Lord, for the church during this season, this holy week, is that we would deepen in, Lord, to spiritual worship, that these truths of the cross and resurrection would not be simply old hat or routine, but Lord, that you would deepen us into the truth of the cross, the blessing, the benefit of the cross and the resurrection. And Father, today we ask as we open your word that you would attend in power and Father, that you would work this time uh, in, tr in the transformation of our hearts and minds, that we would not leave this place the same as we walked in and that we would be a blessing to the world whatever part of the world we're in this week, Lord, that we would be a blessing for your sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in ancient times, when a king won a great victory of one kind or another, and then that king entered victoriously into a city, there would be a great deal of celebration, a great deal of pomp and circumstance as the king came into the city. On Palm Sunday, when cloaks and branches were thrown down on the road and the shouts of Hosanna went up as King Jesus rode meekly into the city of Jerusalem on an unbroken colt, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem as a king who had just won great victories in battle. He had already defeated Satan in the wilderness. And he had overcome diseases and afflictions in scores of different people. He had set people free from demonic oppression and he had overpowered nature itself already by calming a storm. He had overruled death by raising the daughter of Jairus. And he had just raised Lazarus. Lazarus, who had been dead, think of it, dead for four days. His skin purpling, Blackening, rigor mortis having set in, the odors of gases and acids emanating from his dead body. Jesus had come along and he had said just two words in Greek. And a very dead Lazarus rose up alive. Victories astonishing, mighty victories over the powers, over death, and over disease. And now King Jesus strode into Jerusalem on that unbroken colt in fulfillment, my friends, of a prophecy that had been written 500 years earlier, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king 
is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. At this moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, there was a heightened sort of electric buzz in the air about him. In fact, in John 12, if you have a Bible open, in John 12, 17 and 18, we learn that it had been, in fact, it had been Jesus' mighty raising of Lazarus that had caused the crowds to come out with their palm branches and with their cloaks to greet Jesus as he rode into the city of Jerusalem. They were all buzzing about Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus. What sort of person was this who could speak two words and have a dead man respond and come back to life? They came out with their palm branches, with their hosannas, and with the cloaks that they threw down in front of him. And one of the key reactions to Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem in this very dramatic fashion, one of the key reactions is given to us in John 12, 19. Watch this. The Pharisees, aware of the large crowd that has assembled to watch Jesus here on the colt, they decide, the Pharisees decide, that it's probably, probably wouldn't be prudent if they were to interfere in this moment at this time. It might be dangerous, in fact, for them to interfere as Jesus comes with all these crowds and people shouting. The Pharisees commiserate with one another and they say in the verse, you see that you are gaining nothing. Or in the Good News Bible, it reads like this. You see, we are not succeeding at all. We are not succeeding at all. And then they say, notice, look, the world has gone after him. Notice that. In other, in other words, everybody seems to be gathering, or gathering around this Jesus. Everybody seems to be attracted to Jesus, like a, a strong magnet attracts metal. They say, we would be kicking ourselves in the mouth if we tried to interfere in this moment. And no sooner have the Pharisees said this than we get verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, and here it's the Passover feast in Jerusalem that has brought more people than usual into the city, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Notice. The Pharisees have just said the world has gone after him, right? And now in verse 20, there are these Greeks who appear who will express their desire to see Jesus. Indeed, friends, the world is going after Jesus. The nations are gathering to Jesus. These Greeks have come. Now, probably these Greeks who are mentioned in this verse were Gentiles of Greek origin who had come into Jerusalem for the Passover season because they were attracted to Judaism and the teachings of Judaism. 
probably these Greeks were uncircumcised Gentiles who admired what Leon Morris has called, they admired the lofty morality and the monotheism, worship of one God, that was part and parcel with Judaism. And notice they come to who? They come to Philip. Philip, who was one of the 12. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps these Greeks had already met Philip in his hometown of Bethsaida at some point in the past. That would, of course, account for the mention here of Philip's hometown. Bethsaida, by the way, was also the hometown of the apostles Andrew and Peter. So perhaps it's that, or perhaps these Greeks seek Philip out just because the name Philip is a Greek name and they assume that Philip speaks good Greek. In any case, they come to Philip and they say this, notice. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What's happening here, friends? The nations have come to see Jesus. These Greeks want to meet with Jesus. They want to meet this man who spoke two words that broke through death, imagine it, and brought Lazarus back to life. They, they want to have an audience with, they want to have an interview with this king who had been winning all of these victories over disease and over the powers and over death itself. They want to be brought near, we want to see Jesus. They want to be brought near to the one who satisfies the deepest human hunger and thirst. Amen? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I read this, friends, and I think, these are my people. <laughs> Gentiles with a burning desire to see Jesus. Isn't it interesting that at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, at the beginning of his earthly life, a group of Gentiles had come seeking him, namely the wise men from the east had come seeking Jesus, and now, just on the cusp of Jesus' death on the cross, Another group of Gentiles come seeking him, these Greeks. It's like bookends at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. Well, as mentioned earlier, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the animal, he does so in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. But there's more fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy going on here with these Greek folks. As they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. In Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23, again, written 500 years or so before these Greeks appeared here, we have the following. I'll have it on screen here. Listen to this, Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going, 
Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts, where? In Jerusalem, and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Greeks in John 12 have come here in fulfillment of Zechariah 8, just as Jesus on the colt had been fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Well, verse 22 of our preaching text tells us that when Philip, this is interesting, when he heard the request of these Greeks, he went and told Andrew. Now the question is, why didn't Philip just go directly to Jesus with this request? Why go first to Andrew? Well, again, we can only guess, but maybe, I suggest, maybe Philip felt a little bit hesitant to go straight to Jesus with this request from these Gentile Greeks because in times past, Jesus had directed the apostles to concentrate their efforts only on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 10, 5. The apostles, in that passage, the apostles were to go nowhere among the Gentiles. So maybe Philip wanted to just act, maybe I'll just go check it out with Andrew a little bit. We'll compare notes a little bit. Might be prudent before we go and bother Jesus with this, (laughs) right? But in any event, they went to Jesus, didn't they? The end of verse 22 says that Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus does not give, notice, he does not give any sort of direct answer to this request of the Greeks to see him. He doesn't say to Andrew and Philip, oh yeah, sure, send those guys over to me and I'll be happy to talk with them, no problem. He doesn't say that. Instead, what Jesus does, listen, is he interprets the presence of these Greeks. To borrow from Craig Keener, he interprets the presence of these Greeks. The presence of these Greeks asking for an audience with Jesus meant that his hour had come to be glorified. The presence of these Greeks asking this question meant, listen, that the alarm clock was now going off. Time was up, now was the time of Jesus' glorification, and what's his glorification? His glorification is a complex of related events that includes his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension and exaltation in heaven. This is a huge moment in John's gospel because before this moment, Jesus, we remember, had said on several occasions that his hour was not yet. For example, John 2 verse 4, Jesus had said to his mother at the wedding in Cana, 
my hour has not yet come. And at John 7, verse 30, while Jesus was at the temple, no one laid a hand on him to arrest him because, as stated there, his hour had not yet come. And at John chapter 8, verse 20, it was the same again. No one arrested him at the temple because his hour had not yet come. But now, now, as these Greeks come asking to see him, the alarm clock rings. It's time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, why? Why was the coming of these Greeks the signal to Jesus that his hour to be glorified had come? Well, remember how we pointed out the comment of the Pharisees in verse 19. Look, the world has gone after him. And how that comment ended up being truer than the Pharisees knew (laughs) when in verse 20, the nations, namely these Greeks, come seeking Jesus. And indeed, the world was coming to Jesus. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew that the beginning of his glorification, his cross, the beginning of his glorification, his cross would have international power. It's the reason that all of us are sitting here today, amen? that his cross would have international power. The forgiveness of sins by his cross would be internationally available and internationally effective. That's why Jesus will say, only a few verses down from our preaching text, in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, how many people? All people to myself. Jesus had this consciousness that his cross would be internationally effective. The coming of the Greeks in verse 21 signaled to him that God's international salvation plan, his cross, was now imminent. The hour of his glorification was imminent. These Greek people were fulfilling Zechariah 8.22. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Yes, the hour of the Son of Man's glorification by his cross, his resurrection, his victorious ascension had now come. I was in Rona the other day, and especially at this time of year, if you've been in Rona or Canadian Tire or Home Depot, you see those little packages of seeds, right? Carrot seeds, cucumber seeds, onion seeds, whatever seeds you want to grow. Inside those little paper packets, if you've planted, you know that you, you open that package up, and inside you have these dry seeds, and they're doing nothing until you take them out and you bury them in earth and you water them, right? In verse 24, Jesus will compare himself to a little humble seed. Not surprising 
for Jesus to do this sort of thing. Already in the Gospel of John, before we ever get to chapter 12, Jesus has said on a few occasions that it was never about him glorifying himself, exalting himself. He said in 7.18 that he sought not his own glory, but the glory of him who sent him. And he said in 8.50, I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it. And he said in 8.54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. So for Jesus here to compare himself to a little inglorious seed, it fits with his desire to remain humble and not glorify himself. And, and right before this verse, didn't he say, notice the language carefully, that he would be glorified, right? That he would be glorified. That is, someone else, namely the Father in heaven, would do the glorifying of the Son. Jesus says in verse 24, Amen, amen in Greek, two amens. We usually close our prayers with amen. Jesus likes to begin statements with amen. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. My friends, on this Palm Sunday, I say to you that Jesus is the grain of wheat who must be taken out of the paper packet, so to speak, so that he can fall into the earth, so that he can be nailed to the cross and die, the result of which is an international harvest of redemptive fruit. Amen? Are you saved this morning by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? God has gone international with salvation. Without that first step of his glorification, his cross, in other words, there would be no international redemptive fruit, no harvest of forgiveness for the nations, no garden of reconciliation to God for the peoples of the earth. Those Greek folks wished to see Jesus, and the way that they would see him in all his glory was by beholding him on the cross and by receiving him in faith. We sing Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to what? To see you. I want to see you. We wish to see Jesus in all his glory, to see him high and lifted up, as the song says, shining in the light of his glory. Well, I know that Good Friday is still five days away, but my question to you this morning is, do you see, do you see with the eyes of your heart Jesus on his cross? 
Ask yourself this morning, examine yourself, ask yourself in all sobriety, in all seriousness, have I embraced the crucified Jesus in faith, seeing the desperate, desperate need that I have to have my sin against God forgiven, knowing that the crucified Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Do I see Jesus there bleeding as my substitute, taking the wrath of God that I deserved for my sin? Do I see him as my substitute? Do I see him there gasping for breath as his body is heaving on that cross for me? Crushed for my iniquities that I might go free. Do I see him? My friends, do we see the nails through his wrists and through his feet biting into the wood as God's appointed way for us to be reconciled with God? John Newton lived in the 18th century. At the age of 11, Newton went out to sea with his father, who was a Navy captain. But John Newton found life in the Navy to be too disciplined. And so eventually he deserted the Navy, and then they caught him, and they put him in irons, and they gave him 96 lashes. But still, John Newton remained arrogant unwilling to submit to authority. He lived a very debauched life. In his own words, I'll quote him here, Newton said, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. Close quote. Well, eventually John Newton ended up in Africa, where for 15 months he lived hungry, and was treated as a slave by a slave owner. But eventually he became a slave trader himself, bringing countless slaves on ships from Africa to the West in absolutely horrendous and inhumane conditions. Newton was living a very vicious and a very evil way of life. Well, in 1748, on his way to England, his ship encountered a major storm, just a terrific storm in the the middle of the Atlantic. And fearing for his life as the waves were tossing the ship around, filling the ship with water, Newton cried out to God, and eventually the ship drifted to safety. And it was that experience that began John Newton's powerful conversion to Jesus Christ. Years later, he would fully renounce his days in the slave trade, and he would work hard to abolish the slave trade, and he also became an Anglican clergyman. 
And I want to read you one of Newton's hymns. I want you just to listen to this and to reflect, and I think it's all the more impactful now having heard that little part of his story. The hymn is called, In Evil Long I Took Delight. It's a sort of genuine autobiographical hymn, and I think it's a fitting meditation for us to close with this morning. So here's what Newton wrote, and I invite you again, just listen and meditate on this. He said, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief, pleasing grief, with pleasing grief and mournful joy. My spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Amen. This morning, if you are a person who has not yet received by faith Jesus Christ, and his work for you. And and in worship this morning, you have felt something happening, your soul rising as we have worshiped. You want to give him your life. Then I invite you to do that now in prayer, to come and talk to me after the service or one of our leaders, and we will just rejoice with you and be happy to pray with you some more and give you some literature as well to help you in your early Christian walk. So let's pray together now as we close. Father in heaven, we pray this way. If there is a person here who is coming to know you this morning, who has seen his or her need for forgiveness that only the cross and the blood of Jesus can provide, we pray this way. Father, forgive me of my sin. 
I see now that I am a sinner accountable to you, a holy God. And I see also that Jesus Christ and his cross is the way that I can be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ by him rising from the dead. This is the way that I can be justified before you, declared righteous. And so I receive and I embrace the crucified and risen Jesus Christ by faith. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that your wrath has gone to my substitute Jesus Christ and that I can be free and forgiven because of him. And now I pray that I would graft mightily and deeply into the local church and that you would help me by your Holy Spirit who lives with me now to discover my gifts and my path of service for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.